This morning's scripture reading is from the first letter of John, chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. If you're able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you're unable to stand, join us now in lifting your hearts. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle John, writing those words in his old age, writing back to the church at Ephesus, where amazing to think for a moment that the Apostle John, the one uh, whom Christ loved, the one who had walked with him, uh, wasn't the lead pastor. He, he was there serving uh, on a team, was a man of incredible humility who didn't care about position, but cared uh, about the work of the Spirit in the lives of people. It's John who, as you heard and were reminded last week, who had received note over the course of his life that every one of his dear friends, including his beloved brother, had been martyred for their faith. He stood alone at the end of his life as the only apostle left, and he wrote to the church as a father, as a profound theologian, as a scribe in the fourth century who was um, transcribing the revelation of John, wrote in the margin, the apostle John, the theologian, a man of profound wisdom and knowledge of who God was, and a pastor who cared for the flock who wanted to make sure that it was going to be okay in his absence as he was going to be uh, with the Lord in not much time. And we've heard over the last couple of weeks, as we've begun this series on the letters of John, I hope you're reading them, I hope you're spending some time uh, in them, that John wanted to make sure that we have an assurance of the faith that we have in Christ, that we're assured of a lot of things. 
But for so many Christians, there's a lack of assurance uh, in that true knowledge uh, of our salvation. We use words like, I hope that I'm saved. I'm trying to be uh, a good person. We cling to vestiges of past righteousness uh, and look to seasons now of concern and wonder what it's going to be like in the days to come. And John wrote in uh, this letter in chapter 5, verse 13, the first week when I was speaking on it, uh, he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know. You may be secure in that. And the security and the knowledge that you have eternal life. If you considered that just for a moment today, if it, if it sat with you and you went, I am absolutely safe and secure in the love of God through the work of Jesus Christ completed on my behalf, given to me as an eternal gift of God, not based on anything that I have done, am doing, or will do in the future, and it can never be taken from me, but I am safe within that, and that not only in this life, but in the life to come, I will be with him forever. Would that affect at all? the way you live. The hope is yes. It has to. And if it's not, either you're not considering it, you're not pulling down uh, your your eschatology, big thoughts of, of the reality of things to come. You are not dragging that into your present reality. Because the scripture says, You can be assured, we sang it, that you are sons and daughters of God. You can be assured that you are forgiven. The scriptures say you can be assured that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that you are seated with him currently in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, far above all rule uh, and authority. That's actually where we are. God doesn't live in time and space. He is outside of time and space. Uh, We live within time and space, but the reality uh, is that there is an existence that we are currently in that's out there, and we are dragging that reality into the present. And we're trying to live each and every day within that reality, and it will shape us if you consider it for just a moment to begin the day of wondering, God, what would it be like today to work as if I am actually safe and assured in your love? What would it be like for me to consider my portfolio, to consider the portfolio both of my wealth and the portfolio of my relationships, the portfolio of all that you've given me in this world to enjoy? How could I be affected by the reality of the assurance of my salvation in Christ? That's what John is trying to drill down uh, into our hearts. Because, friends, once that takes root, it changes your life. You are not the same anymore. People will notice. If you say that you've had a conversion experience and you've come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and the people closest to you don't recognize it, I would question the validity of that change. Because we change. A curmudgeon who comes to know Jesus loses a little of their curmudgeonness, if that's a word. Maybe they don't become frolicky, but at least there's a softening. 
And the person who, who is out and has no seemingly bounds to life, when they come into a relationship with Christ, there's an order brought. It still means there's some freedom there. It still means there's an extemporaneous nature uh, to life. But it means there's also a purpose and a direction. The harsh are softened. Those who have no conviction find them. We're changed in that. And so... John has been writing and he's saying some of the ways that you can know that you have this change, that you have this. He gave us three tests. We gave those out the first week. Uh, there's the, the moral or ethical test. That's actually what we're going to be uh, looking at today. That you obey the word of God. How your life is lived matters. It shows. It's not the basis of your salvation, but your salvation based on grace works its way out in obedience within the life of the believer. There's the doctrinal or the faith test. What you believe about Jesus matters. Your theological framework. What do you believe about Christ? Is he who he says that he is? And then finally, the, the love or the social test. Do you love God and his people and his creation? How do you live out your life in that? Well, today, John is highlighting here uh, in verses 5 through, first 1, 5 through 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, He's really highlighting this moral test, the ethical test. He's saying there is obedience to the love of Christ. There is obedience to the free work of the gospel. There's a freedom, as it were, to obey. And he begins with a declaration of truth. He comes out of the gates swinging for the fences. He makes a declaration of truth. Then he gives perversions to this truth. That as we consider this truth... Uh, there are perversions within our lives and within the church that affect that. And then moving from that, he finds, after we consider those perversions, uh, forgiveness within the truth and then obedience to the truth. So there's a declaration of truth, a perversion of the truth, a forgiveness within the truth, and an obedience to the truth. First, John comes out with a declaration of truth. Out of nowhere, he finishes the prologue that Harrison uh, preached on last week. And then he begins in verse 5, and he says, This is the message we have heard from him. The him, the pronoun study you would do, is him is Jesus Christ. This is John saying, this is what we heard from Jesus. Jesus told us this, and now we tell you this. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He just states it. And it's as if John is saying the most important thing that you need to know to begin your walk with Christ, your engagement with God, is what do you think about God? What do you think about him? John, the theologian, he distilled down into this most acute statement. He distilled down 192 single compound and descriptive names of God in the Bible. He distilled down 152 designations and descriptions and metaphorical titles of God. He distilled all of these descriptions and titles of God down into one singular statement. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John begins with a proclamation, a heralding of a royal decree defining the divinity. Who is God? And friends, by the way, how you answer that question matters. Who is God? Who is God? For the atheist in our culture, he would answer or she would answer by saying that God's fictitious, 
A delusional character may be created to comfort the simple-minded, the weak. For the agnostic, they may say, well, God exists in some form, but he's not knowable in fullness. For moderns, we like to think of him maybe as Santa Claus, who's just a good and loving chap, uh, distilling or giving out gifts to his children. If you've been good, he's watching all the time. If you've been good, you get something. If you've been bad, you don't. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the confession uh, that our denomination uses uh, sitting underneath Scripture, answers it this way. God is a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is light. God is light. When you consider light, what do you think of? Light enables vision. It produces growth. It reveals beauty. It exposes blemishes. It guides travelers. It warms the earth. The Bible uses light to describe both God, of what God reveals to us, his divine communication to us, and who he is, his divine character. What he says is light. It is a light unto my path, what he speaks. But God is also light by his very character. The Old Testament, God is the light in the burning bush. God is the pillar of fire uh, in the Exodus going uh, before uh, his people. He is the presence in the tabernacle on the golden lampstands. Uh, The psalmist says, the Lord is my light uh, and my salvation in Psalm 27 and speaks of him that you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, Psalm 104. Jesus speaking of himself in the New Testament, saying that he is the perfect reflection of the Father. He said, I am the light of the world, and I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Simeon, when he was considering the mission of Christ before he was born, spoke that he was going to be a light of revelation. Paul describes him in 1 Timothy 6, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. And at the transfiguration, Jesus' face was like the sun, and his clothes were as the light. So in summary, in thinking about this, God is light in the sense that he is perfectly pure, Both morally, there's no evil, and he is all good. And intellectually, there is no error, and he is all truth. God's holiness reveals something about him to us. It's his holiness. But God's, his perfections. But it also reveals something about us. Most of you probably haven't read John Calvin's Institutes to the Christian Religion. I would actually encourage you to do so. It's a wonderful and profound read written by a young man uh, in the 1500s in his late 20s. Think about that. One of the most profound works ever in the Christian faith was written by a man in his late 20s and early 30s. And he begins by saying this, the human eye believes that it can see and understand most everything around it with keen perception until it looks up and stares at the sun. 
And then it recognizes its own limitations when it looks back around and sees only a hazy shadow of things around. And so it is with the Christian. Without first considering who God is, we believe that we have a proper understanding of who we are. But it is only when we begin to gaze at the glorious light of who God is and all of his perfections that then we remove the gaze and begin to look at ourselves. We see our limitations and imperfections. And John begins there. Friends, your devotion should always begin with staring into the glorious light of who God is and then reflecting that on yourself and considering who we are in relationship to him, which leads to the second point. In the church that John was writing to, there were perversions of the truth. The perversions of the truth weren't necessarily as much about God, that God was holy, uh, that God was light, but perversions of the truth of who are we in relationship to him. And there's at least three perversions uh, that you see uh, in chapters 1, 6 through 10. And they begin with the words, if we say. As you're studying scripture, just as a, as a tool, look for repeated phrases and words. And, and this is one of them. If we say, he gives three times in here. And, and he begins uh, at following as one, um, one poet wrote about God's light. He called it an awful purity. It was so overwhelming that it was almost awful because it exposed something about us. How do we understand ourselves in light of who he is? And these three perversions begin with the first one. If we say, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is a person who claims closeness with God while willingly walking in the darkness of the world around him. He or she has at best a broken relationship uh, with God and at worst no relationship at all with him. It it believes about the self uh, that I can make two pledges of allegiance, uh, that I can have dual citizenship. I've never really understood dual citizenship. How it is that someone from another country can come into another country uh, and say, "I I now pledge my allegiance to this country and to my other one. It'd be walking into marriage and go, I pledge my allegiance to you, sweetheart, and to another one. It wouldn't work. But yet in the kingdom of God, we do that. This person is saying, God, being who he is, and when I consider myself in it, I think that I can live a dual life of pledging allegiance to the king of kings and saying I'm going to be in your kingdom while still pledging allegiance to the Lord and the king of this present evil age and saying, but I'm going to live in this world, and the two may, may not really have to affect each other. If you take the Venn diagram, there would have to be some overlap. I probably need to go to church. I probably need to do a few good things. But I can still do really whatever I want to do out there in the world. As one writer put it, this is the height of hypocrisy within the Christian life. We're simultaneously making a statement to the Lord with our lips while saying that we have allegiance to God with our lips while trampling on his law and his goodness with our lives. 
Jesus spoke very clearly and said, no one can serve two masters. He said, you have to choose. You have to understand your own heart. Your own heart will want to try to mitigate both ends to the middle. You'll try to play in both sandboxes. And John is saying, be careful of that. Be careful of that. What we need is people's lives reflect obedience to God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody who is openly living in sin, uh, openly not fighting against sin, uh, saying, but it's for the greater good. It's for the greater good. I'm willing to uh, disobey the righteous, pure light of God because I believe that what I'm doing is for the greater good. How I live over here, I have to keep doing. I can't give it up for him. It's a perversion of the truth. It's someone who wants to live in both worlds. And and John says, instead of walking in the darkness and reflecting the kingdom and culture of evil uh, in this world, we're to walk in the light and produce fellowship uh, with one another. That we live together with one another. We live together uh, in this world. And what we find is that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. That we're cleansed from all of these things. And so there's a duality in this first perversion. In the second perversion in verse 8, it says if we say uh, we, have, uh, we say we have no sin, uh, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all uh, unrighteousness. The second uh, claim or perversion uh, of sin basically says this, and there is a movement, by the way, within the church. You can go, Bill, this is an old heresy. It is an old heresy, but it's a heresy that's found a new form in the church today. And it takes the shape of higher life, of a mystical life, that now that I'm united with Christ, uh, sin isn't in me anymore. I'm a new creation, and the sin is external to me, and I actually don't sin anymore. And you may go, that's crazy. People don't actually believe that. I'll give you personal testimony of riding in a car to a men's retreat with several men And one of the men was dropping the F-bomb left and right and saying all kinds of perverse things. And I'm cringing in the front seat. He's he's an officer in the church where I formerly served. And someone said, you can't talk like that in front of Bill, like I was his conscience. (laughs) I thought, maybe you shouldn't talk like that in front of God. But he said, oh, Bill doesn't care. He knows uh, that this isn't me. This is just sin out there. uh, And I'm fine with God. And I paused in the front seat and I said, you might want to reconsider that statement. It got awfully quiet in the rest of the car ride. Because what he was saying was, I don't sin anymore. I don't have any more sin. And and we go, no, that's not it. Well, when's the last time that you called yourself a liar? We've joked about this before. When someone lies, what do you call them? A liar. How many of you have lied in the last week? Come on. I'm giving you opportunity to do it right now by not lifting your hand. (laughs) But when you confessed it, what did you say? If you confessed it at all. God, forgive me for hedging the truth. God, forgive me for telling a little white lie. God, forgive me for, for not being fully honest. Because we can't say, I'm a liar. God, forgive me, I'm a liar. 
How many of you have lost your tempers in the last week internally or externally with someone around you, driving uh, in your home, wherever it may be? What does the scripture say and call a person who has anger in their hearts? A murderer. How many of you in your confessions said, God, forgive me for the seed of murder within my heart as I was angry with my neighbor and my loved one. You see, we say we're really without sin. We just change the language to soften it a little bit because we wouldn't be so robust as to say we have no sin. But friends, he's saying what we need is a greater clarity of understanding that to combat the sinful nature and sinful behavior, that we've been given the gift of confession, that we confess our sins to the Lord. We own those things to the Lord, recognizing that Christ has covered us. And then the final, if we say, is if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. This is one that uh, goes back mainly to a misunderstanding uh, of the original sin of the fall, that we're under the headship of Christ and uh, that we look and we realize that everybody coming into this world is born into sin. Christianity Today back in the early 90s had a front cover and it was a little uh, baby toddler moved, pushing up on his arms uh, and he had a cross tattooed, not literally, a cross tattooed on one and a serpent on the other. And it said, see to the woman or see to the serpent? Question mark was the front page cover of Christianity Today. How many of you in training your children up have had to train them to be selfish? Take two 18-month-olds with one toy, and you will prove original sin. You're going to work your entire life to train them to consider others as more worthy than themselves. You're going to train them their entire lives towards obedience, but you will never have to train a child towards sinful behavior. They run naturally to darkness, into hiddenness. And yet we sit and we say within our world, all is naturally good. Man is innately good. There's a story, it's probably not true, but a story of Charles Spurgeon, who at his church, a man came up after Spurgeon was preaching, and of course Spurgeon talked about sin, and the man came to him and said, I don't believe in sin, I don't believe in original sin, I've never sinned, I'm a good person. And Spurgeon, being enticed by this, invited him over to dinner. And they were having dinner, and it said at dinner that Spurgeon stood up and took a glass of water and threw it in the man's face. And the man's behavior changed immediately, and his profanity uh, came out, and his anger uh, came, and he uh, was conversing uh, strongly with Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said, oh, you were, you were misled. The old man was not dead. He had simply fallen asleep, and I have awakened him with only a cup of water. It's there. And we need to recognize that. And what we need in that then is as we recognize who we are in Christ, or who we are in the natural person, as we consider our hearts, it actually should make us shudder. It should make us shudder at the sinfulness of our own hearts. Parents, I'm sorry to say this, at the sinfulness of your own kids. It's always everybody else's kid. It can't be my Johnny. It can't be my Susie. It can't be my sweet little one. Well, it can, and it is, and it can be us, and it can be our spouses, and it is all of those things. So what do we do with that? 
Well, that's the third point. Chapter two, verses one and two, there is forgiveness in the truth. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. My desire is for you to live holy, perfect lives. But John understood you can't live a holy, perfect life. He said, but if anyone does sin, and you will, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what do we do? What is our hope when we realize and affirm that God is perfect in his holiness, in his light, and there is no darkness in him at all, and we have not only a natural tendency, but a natural state, and even as followers of Christ, we still have the flesh and the old self, the old man living there, that tension uh, that Paul talks about, two desiring centers, the desire to do good, and yet the desire to do evil, that the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I find myself going to, the sin that's so easy ensnares us. All of these things. What do you do with that? How do you process it? For many of us, we double down on work. You double down on effort. I'm just going to be better. I'm going to go to some of you may be here in church today because of last night. I'm so thankful you're here today, but you made a vow last night, this week. God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I'll start going to church. Maybe some of you gave money uh, to church today because you made a vow that said, God, I know I've messed up. Now I'm going to give more, uh, and then you'll bless me. God, I will be nicer. God, I will love more. God, I will do this in order for you to forgive me and to do these things. And John is saying, that's not it. What we need to understand when we come face to face with our sinful nature, and I know this isn't delightful to learn. All I'm doing is telling you a little bit about yourself. It should be a self-awareness. You should know your own heart when you consider it. I've told you plenty of stories about me and Sam's and my way of dealing with Sam's, just not to go to it anymore. You know what I found? I get frustrated at Harris Teeter. <laughs> because the problem's not Sam or Harris Teeter, it's Bill McCutcheon. And it's my heart. And so what I do what do I do in those moments? What do you do in those moments? What you do is you find that you have an advocate in Christ Jesus, the righteous, who is your propitiation. And you're going, okay, big words. Advocate, righteous, propitiation. Well, it's basically saying this, my friends. Jesus Christ currently, in his perfection of who he is as perfectly righteous, the very light of God himself incarnate, now in uh, the presence of God, is not defending you as an advocate. An advocate is one who defends the defenseless or the weak uh, in a court of law. He is not defending you against Satan, by the way. You need to understand that because Satan has been cast down from heaven. He no longer has audience with God up there. It says that at Calvary that he saw the evil one cast down. And so why do we need to have an advocate in heaven? Why do we need to have Christ who is there in heaven? Because our actions continually give to the Lord accusation against us. And what we need is someone, the righteous one, not looking at our righteousness, but standing on his own righteousness, saying, now, Father, no, a bill is propitiated, bill is covered by my completed work. 
Everyone who is in Christ is covered. The word propitiation is a huge word. It's a powerful word. Think of it as a covering. It is the covering of the righteous work of Jesus Christ over your life. It had power to cover all of the sins of everybody within the world. But we know that John's not a universalist saying that everybody is saved. But what he is saying is it has the power to do that. And it does have the power to save everyone who calls upon the name from every tribe and tongue and nation from every time and age that is and is to come. And it covers you in the very wrath of God, which is poured out against the darkness. Guess what happens to it? It doesn't just bounce off of Christ's work. It is fully absorbed in it. And it's not just pinging around out there in the cosmic universe somewhere awaiting to come back around and hone in on you when you have a particularly bad day. But it is fully taken in Christ. That's why he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, wept to a point of tears and even begged with his father to say, take this cup, and we've talked about this before, my friends. It was not the cup of the cross, per se, in human form. There have been plenty of people who have suffered, humanly speaking, worse than Jesus suffered. Humanity got a lot better at inflicting pain on humanity over the years. But what no one other than Christ has done is drank the cup of the wrath of his father on behalf of the elect. And he drank it down to the dregs. Willfully. And we need to understand that he is now our advocate, speaking both to the father and to us. I don't know how many of you have been watching the Murdaugh trial, but I've been amazed at how quick we are to damn a man. I don't know if he's guilty or not, but I know this, there's another courtroom and I sit in it and there's a righteous judge and I'm so thankful that I have a defense attorney in Christ, who says that he actually is guilty, but I took his punishment. Oh, friends, that changes you when you consider it. And where it changes you is this, and we'll end, and we're going to open this more in the weeks to come, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. When you begin to understand the completed work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, the once for all covering of Christ for you through his completed work at the cross, it changes how you live. You want to obey him. You want to live the righteous life, which is the last few verses. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Friends, obedience matters. 
Remember, we say it all the time, the indicative always precedes the imperative. You just heard the indicative that you are forgiven in Christ. Now the imperative, live it out. Holiness matters within the church, my friends. It matters within your life. And the invitation is for us to walk as Christ walked. That doesn't mean pick up a Middle Eastern accent. It doesn't mean try to pick up his mannerisms. It means live in a way that reflects his reflection of the Father. And John Newton wrote these words. He said, I am not what I, he said, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. John Newton was the famous former slave trader and he came into a saving relationship with Christ and his life was forever changed. Friends, that's the invitation. So I'm gonna invite you now to come to this table because on that night when, when Jesus was going to the garden and he wept, he used an imagery and he said, I'm giving my life for yours. I'm stepping into the place of becoming a wrath taker so that you won't ever have to experience one bit of it. Know that, my friends. In Christ, you have no wrath for you. Isn't that great? You have discipline, which is loving. You don't have wrath. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat it. And he understood that in order for there to be forgiveness of sins, blood had to be spilled he said, this is my blood which is given for you, the propitiation for your sins, the forgiveness of them. Take and drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again.